partition and the limits of Irish commemoration. Reflections on 1921. With Professor Ian McBride of the University of Oxford. Hosted by Professor Richard English of Queen's University Belfast. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this event today, organised here at Queen's University Belfast by the Public Engagement Office. And it's a particular pleasure for me to introduce and welcome our distinguished speaker, Professor Ian McBride, Foster Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford. Educated at Jesus College Oxford and University College London, Professor McBride's books include his pioneering study, Scripture Politics, Ulster Presbyterians and Irish Radicalism in the Late 18th Century, published in 1998. The brilliant wide-angled book, 18th Century Ireland, The Isle of Slaves, published in 2009. His influential edited collection, History and Memory in Modern Ireland from 2000, very relevant to today's talk. The co-edited Princeton History of Modern Ireland from 2016, and his 1997 study of the Siege of Derry in Ulster Protestant mythology. Professor McBride's next book will be an archivally based work about Irish Catholics under the penal laws. After Ian has spoken, there'll be the chance for him to answer questions from you. Please do post those questions through the Q&A function on your screens in front of you, and we'll get through as many as we can. But before that, to speak on the subject of partition and the limits of Irish commemoration, reflections on 1921, it's a great pleasure to hand over now to Professor Ian McBride. Richard, th thanks very much for the introduction and uh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm grateful um, that somebody has asked me to address this subject. How can we find a, a positive way of commemorating the creation of Northern Ireland uh, 100 years ago? That's the question that I'm addressing this afternoon. Is it possible to mark the centenary of a separate political entity in the North? in a manner that promotes cohesion rather than discord. Over the last 40 years, for reasons I don't fully understand, remembrance, reenactment, the ritual reflection on the past has become increasingly prevalent in the public sphere. It's not just that we feel a duty to remember those who have suffered or made sacrifices, but we've come to believe that dealing with the past or working through the past is somehow good for us. Of course, commemoration is not primarily about the past, uh, but about the present. It's about us, our beliefs, our values, aspirations and delusions, just as much as it's about the relics or documentary traces or images that we have preserved of past events. And so the relationship of historians to commemoration, I think, is usually an uneasy one. What we historians write is, of course, part of the wider process by which our societies re-examine their assumptions, the assumptions that define us and our relations to others. And we can't separate ourselves from those conversations, even if we wanted to. On the other hand, we're trained mostly to write for an audience of specialists, and we feel obliged to maintain our autonomy, the autonomy of our discipline, against attempts by public figures to present the past as a series of moral lessons. And so with those um, tensions or ambivalences in mind, I want to make four suggestions. 
the first one is remember there was no simple solution to the predicament of 1921, the standoff that contemporaries sometimes called the Ulster difficulty. That predicament was a version of the minority problem that preoccupied uh, continental Europeans in the same years uh, with equally unhappy results. Uh, two, remember Northern Ireland, as established in 1921, was a dysfunctional uh, entity. Although unionists worked hard to conceal the flaws in their creation, they apparently lacked either the will or the means to rectify them. Three, remember the idea that Northern Ireland is 100 years old obscures a history of instability and struggle and change. Uh, yes, the border uh, has been in existence for 100 years, but the parliament inaugurated in June 1921 was terminated in 1972, and the foundation charter of Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland that exists today, isn't the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, it's the Good Friday Agreement. And finally, remember, remembrance and reconciliation do not always fit snugly together. Um, so could I have the first slide, please? Um, so I'll go through those um, four points. Point one, then, don't forget, there was no obvious means of reconciling the demands of Ulster Unionists and Irish Nationalists 100 years ago. Uh, it's sometimes said that partition, the creation of Northern Ireland, was a triumph of physical force over democracy. Uh, that's an argument made, for example, um, in Roland Fanning's The Fatal Path. It's true um, that Unionists uh, signed the Covenant in 1912, rejecting home rule by any means necessary. It's true they raised 90,000 Ulster volunteers. It's true they established a provisional government to take over should home rule become law. So you could say that having benefited from the rules from, of parliamentary politics, for many decades, they now declared they weren't going to play by the rules. It's also true that their success in blocking home rule created a political vacuum that um, enabled uh, militant separatism to begin to flourish. But it's naive to think that violence and democracy are distinct and mutually exclusive forces in Ireland or anywhere else. And there's Carson um, surveying some Ulster volunteers. When we talk about democracies, we sometimes imply that we're talking about societies that are morally superior or politically mature, that respect human rights um, or love freedom more than others. When really we're talking about people fortunate enough to be born in a political system where there's already a high degree of consensus existing about the membership of the political community. So that if you find yourself in a minority, as I um, seem to do mostly at election time, you don't reject the will of the majority, however deluded or irrational or misled you think it might be, because you might find yourself in the majority the next time. Ireland wasn't like that. It was a deeply divided society, and the depth of the division had been clear since the 1886 election. Catholics voted overwhelmingly for home rule, um, or some form of self-government, Protestants overwhelmingly for the retention of the Union in its existing form. And what's more, there was a geographical character to that division. 
um, as you can see here, a, a contemporary map that was um, part of uh, the Sinn Féin propaganda campaign and was described as um, an exercise of national self-determination. That was the term used at the time. De Valera claimed the 1918 election had been a national plebiscite. And in 2018, Simon Coveney praised uh, the 1918 election as an extraordinary act of a self-determining people. But none of the words national, self, or determination has an agreed or straightforward definition. Academic studies highlight uh, what I think is the most problematic and fascinating aspect of self-determination. The doctrine tells us it's up to the people to work out their own political structures. But first, someone must work out who constitutes the people, who constitutes the nation, how do we define their territorial boundaries. So it's not really a case of Democrats versus anti-Democrats. It's an argument about the meaning or application of democracy in a divided society. Unionists didn't argue uh, against the principle of national self-determination. Rather, they argued that Ireland was not and never had been a single national unit. Uh, as Thomas Sinclair put it in 1912, I quote, there is no national Irish demand for home rule because there never has been and there is no homogeneous Irish nation. So um, what am I saying then? I, I suppose that part of the job of the historian is to resist simplified accounts of past predicaments. And in this case, the international literature, which means international history, international law, comparative politics, is littered with versions of this Irish dilemma. What happens when your right of self-determination stands in the way of me exercising mine. Uh, point two, uh, then, um, don't forget Northern Ireland was structurally flawed. The creation of Northern Ireland highlights the double standard employed by unionists. Um, their argument had been the creation of a separate Dublin parliament would abandon a quarter of the Irish population to the tyranny of the other three. They would be in a permanent minority and they would be radically disadvantaged in that situation. But in 1921, they established a Belfast Parliament over the maximum area they could control, dismissing objections that this left a third of the population at the mercy of the other two. And the response, incidentally, of, of the British um, was the same response they had given to assuage unionist concerns about home rule, the bland reassurance that everything would be okay, that common sense and goodwill would prevail. During the stormant years, Ulster unionists treated Northern Ireland as their own exclusive property. It was their creation and it existed to protect the values that were specific to them, the survival of the Protestant religion, loyalty to the crown, uh, the British way of life, as they interpreted it. Partition was a vindication of their struggle over three centuries against the political ambitions of the Catholic Church and Irish nationalism. The assumption was that Northern Ireland, or as they generally preferred to call it, Ulster, had a single unitary personality with its own distinct history. So um, when Sir James Craig remarked that Richard Dawson Bates, uh, Minister of Home Affairs, 
quote, knew the mind of Ulster better than almost anyone else. He unthinkingly conformed to the standard rhetorical practice of Unionists, which assumed that Catholics and Nationalists of the North, at least for some political purposes, did not really count. The history of Ulster was also an exclusively um, confessional or ethnic construct as presented under the Stormont regime, combining British, wider British experiences, the Glorious Revolution, the Empire, the Industrial Revolution, and so on, with the distinctively local experiences uh, of Ulster Protestants, the Plantation, 1641, uh, the Siege of Derry, the Covenant. All of this is well known, but I just want to um, call attention to one unusual feature. Northern Ireland uh, did not commemorate its own foundation. It didn't mark uh, the opening of the Parliament in 1921. Partly, I think, um, that's because the commemorative calendar was already quite busy. Uh, There were, of course, orange anniversaries to be commemorated, and to those were added um, World War commemorations. But as Alvin Jackson um, has shown, to the extent that Unionists had a creation myth, it always remained 1912, the Covenant, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Larne Gun Running, demonstrations of resolution and cohesion. Uh, there was paradox and irony there, of course, because 1912 was a rebellion against the British government. Its aim was to prevent self-government for Ireland, not establish self-government for Ulster. It was led by a Dubliner, Edward Carson, and so on. But the point is, uh, as Alvin Jackson um, has argued, they chose a history irrelevant at best to one third of the citizens of Northern Ireland who were nationalist, if not actually offensive. And so my second point then, I think, is that um, uh, as the centenary approaches that we might reflect on the gap between the commemorative culture that existed in Northern Ireland, particularly in its first 50 years, the gap between that commemorative culture and the principles of parity of esteem and rigorous impartiality and so on um, to which we subscribe. Point three, um, don't forget uh, Northern Ireland as a shared political space is just about 23 years old, not 100 years old. The turning point, um, and um, this has become an obsession for me, um, in um, recent uh, months. The turning point was the 1993 Downing Street Declaration, which sets out the foundations for a negotiated settlement that would involve the two governments, of course, the constitutional uh, representatives of unionism and nationalism, but also Sinn Féin and other parties linked to paramilitary groups. At its core um, was this uh, wonderfully slippery, meandering uh, sentence and um, this is a double helix, I think, because this uh, this is from paragraph four of the Downing Street Declaration, 1993. It's sometimes described as a kind of double helix. The British government agree that it is for the people of the island of Ireland alone, by agreement between the two parts respectively, to exercise their right of self-determination on the basis of consent, freely and concurrently given north and south, to bring about a united Ireland if that is their wish. 
I think there's much that we still don't know about um, the process that produced this declaration, how far Republicans were pushed into negotiations. Nobody knows how much support really existed within the IRA itself for the new political direction pursued by Sinn Féin. Some accounts portray the Irish as nudging the British into concessions. Others emphasise the continuities of British policy making. But what we do know is that this serpentine sentence and the notion of concurrent consent um, enabled the parking of the constitutional issue, the fundamental questions of legitimacy, and apparently reconciled to mutually opposed positions or commitments. So there was, on the one hand, the Republican scenario uh, centred on the British recognising the Irish national rights to self-determination, facilitating uh, the assembly of a 32-county convention in which the reunification of Ireland would be agreed and the British would then depart um, or hang around to mop up um, loyalist um, resistance. That bit was always vague. That was the, the Republican scenario. The terrestrial reality was partition would remain, Northern Ireland would remain part of the UK, but there would be power sharing and an Irish dimension. And somehow those two versions of the future had to be brought into closer alignment, the cosmic and the provincial, so that Republicans in particular, who were moving further than other parties from their foundational beliefs, must have something to show and so the compromise then was that unionists uh, would have a veto on constitutional change for as long as they carried a majority, formed a majority in Northern Ireland, but they would have this veto because the Irish people had given it to them. That's perplexing, uh, murky, obscure, uh, but it was pushed by the Irish government um, because they believed that without it, the problem of the 1918 election, uh, that um, act of self-determination that had been overridden um, by Imperial Britain, that problem could not be overcome. The British attitude um, seems to me, I mean, having talked to both British and Irish officials involved in um, this formula, the British attitude, I think, was that recognition of self-determination belonged to the realm of theology. Uh, it was a Republican shibboleth. The consent principle has legal force, whereas self-determination, since it addresses a hypothetical situation, was just ornamental greenery. It does, however, make a large statement about the direction of Irish history. It does have the ring of a departing colonial power, perhaps uh, a recognition of psychological withdrawal from Northern Ireland. And in the um, very wonderful witness seminar, a, a material assembled by Jennifer Todd and John Coakley, uh, there's an interesting moment where Sir Robin Butler, then Cabinet Secretary, says, um, compares the Northern Irish situation um, to Hong Kong and says, well, you know, this was going on at the same time, discussions about the future of Hong Kong. We've got no interest in retaining Hong Kong but we thought that we should, quote, do our best for the people who we'd administered and not abandon them. 
Um, so there's an unguarded um, hint of that um, colonial attitude I've just mentioned. So to summarize um, my third point then, I suppose don't forget that the making of peace um, meant uh, the sacrifice of ideological purity. Point four, um, remembrance doesn't always lead to reconciliation. The high point of the decade of centenaries so far has been or was the centenary of the Easter Rising of 1916, once a bitterly divisive event within nationalism, let alone between nationalists and unionists, um, but a powerful and positive precedent, 2016, for proponents of the idea that history can have healing properties. The central concept of 2016 was pluralism, and it was helped, of course, by the centenary of the Battle of the Song and by the impression of even-handedness um, that was presented by this um, dual centenary year. The guiding principles were to be historical accuracy, mutual respect, inclusiveness and reconciliation. That new spirit was displayed in the Remembrance Wall at Glasnevin, where the names of all those who died were recorded, um, irrespective of their political allegiance. And in the series of commemorative stamps, um, not just the martyrs of 1916, but women, civilians, the two brothers, William and Michael Malone, who'd fought on opposite sides. It was achieved at the success of 2016 um, with great generosity on the part of the Irish state, uh, which offered financial support um, to a whole range of bodies without seeking to control the message, or at least, you know, um, in a clumsy way to control the message. And it was done with the help of an academic advisory group who declared, quote, the aim should be to broaden sympathies without having um, to abandon loyalties. But the same group also recognised, quote, that the state, the Irish state, cannot be expected to be neutral about the events that led to its formation. I think it's foolish to expect historians to replicate the atmosphere of healthy debate they sustained during the centenary of the Easter Rising. The legitimacy of the southern state uh, is rooted in many decades of political stability and cultural consensus. In the years before 2016, Irish political issues, most obviously marriage equality, were only tangentially related to the struggles of 1916 to 1922. In contrast, Northern Ireland revisits uh, partition at a time when Brexit has exacerbated divisions over the border. And more importantly, I think, there's never been a strong sense mm. that Northern Ireland uh, is a collective moral enterprise. Um, I think I'm done with the, the slides now, so we can um, get rid of those, please. Um, looking back on 1921, its origins and its design, the, the constitutional settlement of 100 years ago seems to me to be the polar opposite of the Good Friday Agreement of the peace process of the 1990s. It was the outcome of violence and the threat of violence, both North and South, whereas the Good Friday Agreement bound the parties to the pursuit of political goals by exclusively peaceful and democratic means. The legacy of violent confrontation 
um, and political polarization dominated the new political structures established in 1921, and it created fertile soil for um, habits of evasion and habits of denial to take root uh, for the means of screening out unpalatable facts. What I've been trying to suggest then is that um, this might be a good time for some of those defense mechanisms to be dismantled, or at least for some of those habits of evasion and denial uh, to be examined. And so just to go through them very quickly once more, I mean, first of all, Irish nationalists, not alone, um, Irish nationalists have often screened out the profound historical differences that produced a divided society in Ulster. Um, two, after 1921, Ulster Unionists, as David Trimble famously acknowledged, built a cold house for Catholics. And the culture of commemoration established under Stormont is an example of that. But I think Unionists do not um, generally accept uh, that the exclusion of nationalists from politics under Stormont and the resulting instability and the eruption of violence flowed from their own decisions uh, and uh, they prefer to blame the hostility of Dublin or misunderstandings in London. Third, finding a formula in the 1990s capable of expressing some of the complexities of the Northern Irish situation uh, was difficult and meant abandoning the certainties of 1921. And finally, what looks like the maturity of the South is the product of long-standing social cohesion, ironically, um, the product of partition itself. Um, It's um, the product of a benign environment, very unlike post-conflict Northern Ireland. So, Richard, back to you. Ian, thank you so much. Wonderful, Uh, really brilliant talk. And I know that there will be many questions. Uh, Please do post your questions. Uh, This is to the audience in the question and answer box. We've got a number already. So the first question, Ian, is this. It relates really most resonantly to your fourth point. Uh, And the question is this. Are we helped by reconciliatory concepts such as Paul Ricoeur's narrative hospitality so as to genuinely respect our divergent community histories? Are we helped by reconciliatory concepts such as Paul Ricoeur's narrative hospitality so as to genuinely respect our divergent community histories? Ian? Um, I guess it's very difficult to be against hospitality, isn't it? Um, That's the first thing to say. Um, And of course, this has been a a theme of of President Higgins's comments on on commemoration, um, which are entirely well-intentioned, interesting, and remarkable uh, to the extent that they feature Paul Ricoeur and and other luminaries um, of the vast literature and memory. Um, I also think, of course, um, hospitality involves a certain kind of politics. Um, That is to say, um, there are always claims being made by um, the groups who are offering hospitality to other groups. So it's not as if um, we can simply um, eliminate completely political considerations from commemoration. 
even um, with the most generous spirit. Um, I, I mean, I suppose the, the main point that I would um, reiterate is that um, in the great um, memory boom, in all of the interest in World War uh, commemoration, in the very special uh, case of the Holocaust and Holocaust commemoration in, um, well, Europe, North America, and in Israel itself, um, in um, the case of memory in transitional societies and the case of memory in societies that face campaigns for indigenous rights, in all of these areas, um, reconciliation has worked where basic political questions have been resolved. Um, and that's um, that's not the case in Northern Ireland, and that's why I think it's particularly difficult in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Ian. Uh, next question is this. Would reunification unsettle the whole of the island of Ireland, at least the Republic of Ireland, the questioner asks, at least the Republic of Ireland is stable and benign, as you attest in the current scenario. So would reunification unsettle the whole of the island? Um, uh, well, I'm not sure I can really answer that. Um, what I could say, I suppose, is that um, I think the political elite in Dublin fears that reunification uh, might um, cause serious problems for the whole island. Um, that's it's uh, something that's very clear in in the witness seminars that I mentioned earlier, um, conducted by Jennifer Todd and John Coakley, where Irish um, officials are very frank about um, their fears of British withdrawal um, in the 1980s, um, in, in the run-up to the peace process. I mean, in their horror at the very notion of British withdrawal. And at least according to Dermot Nally, um, you know, many, many studies were done that showed uh, the serious economic damage that might result from reunification um, and I suppose the security problems, to put it, euphemistically i don't see um i don't see a lot of enthusiasm in the um political elite in dublin for reunification but i do see a realization that a conversation is going on about um reunification and that something has to be done about it um that the dublin government must be part of that too um, and just to finish off, I mean, I suppose one of the really interesting things about the Good Friday Agreement is that it um, makes it clear that unification um, will take place if 51% of the population of the North votes for it in a referendum and if 51% of the population in the South votes for it in a referendum. And so... Um, uh, if you, um, I mean, if you disagree with me about readiness in the South on this subject, try to imagine um, an Irish government running the the referendum campaign that would have to be fought in order to make that possible. Thanks very much, Ian. Uh, next question is this: To what degree does the largely segregated education in the North contribute to a lack of shared understanding of both historical developments? and current ones? Um, I, uh, segregated education is, is part of a wider 
a problem of social division. It's an important one. So I think um, studies of segregation and of the society, divided society that results from it, emphasize um, separate schooling, but also um, infrequent intermarriage between um, Protestants and Catholics, Unionists and Nationalists, um, residential segregation, of course, and then I suppose the the various organizations and structures and mechanisms that perpetuate uh, different cultural attitudes, different political loyalties, and so on. So, I mean, it, it seems to me um, that um, integrated education um, must um, help break down social divisions, but it's one part um, of the problem. It addresses one part of the problem and the others would have to be addressed too. Thank you. Uh, next question says, great talk, Ian. Do you think for unionism, the anniversary of Northern Ireland's existence could be seen as helping a system oppose unification polls? Um, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I... I worry a little bit that um, the the centenary is an opportunity to elide the the discontinuities of the last hundred years and um, to make it seem as if the the history of Northern Ireland has been um, rather more easy and seamless than it actually was, and I suppose. Um, the, the slide um, that I showed, uh, which the Northern Ireland office uh, released, showing Seamus Heaney next to the NIO logo and the slogan, Our Story in the Making, um, it is, is one of the signs that that might be possible. In other words, that the, the really difficult aspects of Northern Ireland's history and the divisive nature of partition and of the Stormont regime might somehow be minimised in um, unionist commemoration of this centenary. Um, and I do just slightly wonder whether um, the the rise of English nationalism, um, you know, generally a bad thing for Austro unionists and for Northern Ireland, um, you know, for both communities or all communities, um, the rise of English nationalism in some ways by its insistence on um, parliamentary sovereignty and so on might also um, enable uh, a kind of unionism which is um, interested in, in you know, deepening denial or reinforcing denial um, rather than addressing the past in a, in a more complicated way. And, and the example of that, I suppose, uh, would be... Um, recent um, hints by British politicians, Tory politicians, that Britain does have an interest in Northern Ireland after all, a selfish interest. Thanks, Ian. Uh, next question is this. To 1920s unionists, partition was the amputation of 26 UK counties, while Northern nationalists still feel amputated from the rest of Ireland. Discuss. Um... Amputation. Uh, I mean, I suppose that uh, clearly the mutilation of the nation was a main theme of 
um, nationalist, but especially northern nationalist writing. It's the, the title of, of a, a booklet written by Catherine Healy, um, for example. Um, and the people who uh, were most disadvantaged uh, by partition were certainly northern nationalists. The first protests uh, against partition um, came from unionists just over the border. I, I mean, unionists in the three lost counties of, of, of Ulster, um, who were also uh, angry uh, about the partition of Ulster as well as the partition of Ireland. Um, what is there to say about uh, uh, amputation? I, um, I suppose that feeling has um, uh, lessened uh, in the sense that, um, as various scholars have shown, including um, Claire O'Halloran, uh, whose book, Partition and Limits of Irish Nationalism, I'm nodding at in my own title today, the differences between um, Southern nationalists and Northern nationalists have become more obvious, more pointed at different times. I think Northern nationalists um, had reason to feel um, <clears throat> irritated in 2016 by the, um, the general happiness or contentness or complacency with which the Easter Rising centenary was observed given that the, the National Territory had not been reunified. Thank you. Uh, here's a question. Partition was not an event, but a process. Should the Northern Ireland commemoration also be seen as a process like the learning curve of the decade of commemorations? Um, well, I think, uh, I, I'm assuming that uh, the best way to mark the centenary is, I suppose, in educational ways. That is to say, you public public lectures, um, media interest, the involvement of academic historians, um, exhibitions, um, I suppose, uh, online exhibitions, really. And all of those um, give an opportunity to explore um uh, longer term aspects of partition. Um, one would be the economic uh, aspects of partition. It took a while. Um, and I'd be surprised if there weren't uh, in places like Derry an interest in um, the economic consequences of partition. Um, and another really obvious one, I think, is the Boundary Commission, um, the postponed Boundary Commission, which really failed in 1925. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons why partition at the time wasn't the sort of apocalyptic event that we might expect it to have been was that um, nationalists were able to think that the question hadn't been resolved, um, that perhaps a third of the territory of the six counties might be um, transferred to the Dublin government. Um, perhaps Northern Ireland would not survive the transfer of so much territory and so on. So um, I would hope those um, aspects 
of partition um, will be discussed uh, over the next few months. Thanks, Ian. You, you referred in your talk to the role of historians and the ways in which historians address the question you're talking about today. The next question is along those lines. In the context of Northern Ireland as post-conflict, how, in your view, can professional historians best play a constructive role? Um, well, I, I mean, I think they have been playing a constructive role, um, I mean, pretty successfully over um, the last 20 or 30 years. I, I, um, I don't think it's it's the fault of historians that there hasn't been more reconciliation in Northern Ireland. Um, I, I don't think, um, I, I mean, it, it's asking a lot of academic historians um, to ask for a, you know, a more serious contribution from them. Sometimes, um, of course, historians do not agree among themselves. Um, and, in the last um, commemoration Bonanza, um, which uh, was the bicentenary of the 1798 rebellion, I think that was a lot more obvious than, it, than it's been recently, um, where th you could clearly see rival schools um, fighting over 1798, and in particular over the extent of sectarianism um, during the 1798 rebellion. In the, the, the years in between, uh, the, I suppose the main area for historians to contribute has been dealing with the past. Um, I think it would be would be better actually if it would have been better if they had been more involved in that in that process, which has sort of spluttered through a series of um, uh, government consultation exercises and. Um, remarkably, I think, failed to generate a very significant result. Um, so um, that's not a very satisfactory answer. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, historians are best at writing books, and um, through those books, they have often a minuscule impact on public attitudes. But in Ireland, North and South, an unusual number of people want to read good history books. Um, and I suppose they should keep doing that and keep, keep giving public lectures. Thank you. Uh, one of the question, questions here relates specifically to the reference you made to Sir Robin Butler, and the questioner asks, could you uh, reiterate Sir Robin Butler's comments, but also could you say slightly more about how you interpret the significance of what Robin Butler was saying when you in, in the comments about Hong Kong uh, and, and Northern Ireland that you referred to. Yeah. Okay. So the the context for those um, comments uh, was a witness seminar on the uh, peace process, a series of witness seminars, uh, which means that various participants were reassembled to discuss uh, the making of, um, in this case, the Downing Street Declaration. And Sir Robin Butler had been the, the cabinet secretary at the time. Other British and Irish officials were also in this conversation. And um, what you, the, the wonderful thing about a witness seminar is you learn something from the, um, the collective conversation that's going on from the tensions between different people. 
And um, it seemed to me, and again, I've been doing a bit of research on this and talking to some of the people involved, although not Robin Butler himself, that um, British officials, um, in the case, um, most obviously Sir Quentin Thomas, had a very good grasp of what was happening um, at the time of the Downing Street Declaration um, and um, were... um, preoccupied with securing the principle of consent and understood that um, concessions of some kind were being made um, to Irish nationalism. In in the same witness seminar, Dermot Nally, one of the Irish officials involved, talks about tilting um, the situation towards an Irish nationalist interpretation of history. And um, many people at the time realised that the Downing Street Declaration moved Northern Ireland into an, an all-Ireland context, moved its future into an all-Ireland context. Quentin Thomas understood this and understood, um, commented on what was not being said in the Downing Street Declaration, that is, that um, Unionists were a nation in their own right. Um, the consent principle was was based on prescription. It had been around for a long time. It wasn't based on the rights of unionists. Robin Butler um, and made this, I thought, rather extraordinary comment um, about the similarity between negotiations uh, in Northern Ireland and negotiations over the future of Hong Kong. And the comment was simply, you know, well, we must try to do our best um, uh, with these people who, who we've been governing um, for some time. So um, perhaps I'm reading too much into that. Uh, what really strikes me is that um, I, I mean, I talked to Sir John Chilcott as well about this. Um, I've never heard uh, any of the British officials involved in that process um, betray the slightest sense that they identified with the local brand of Britishness espoused by Ulster Unionists. Um, They're very, very correct people. Um, And their um, insistence on the consent principle is um, very, very clear. But there is no sense that um, the British uh, on the other island recognize a reciprocal relationship with the British uh, in Northern Ireland. And I suppose that suggests a certain kind of colonial attitude. Thanks, Ian. Not unrelated to that, uh, the fragility of unionism possibly, is the the next question. And the questioner asks, could unionism flourish in a united Ireland? Traditional Northern unionists might find allies in the South with connections in GB. Um, I, well, mm, yes, um, they could do, couldn't they? Uh, I, I mean, I guess uh, um, uh, a reasonably orthodox unionist um, might object immediately that there would no longer be a union. Um, and the terms in which Britishness expressed itself um, would, would be very different. But yes, of course, um, they could. Um uh, because um, Southern Unionists did, uh, 
I mean, the experience of Southern Unionists probably mostly these days recalled um, with an unwarranted degree of positivity and optimism, sometimes forgetting um, some of the difficulties of the free state years. But nevertheless, um, I don't think you will find representatives of the, the Southern Protestant community, if you like, um, who will... Um, give a very negative view of their situation. Um, the other part of the other way to answer that question is that the identity, um, I mean the cultural values and allegiances and the sense of history of Ulster Unionists um, are capable of being redefined in, in a variety of ways and they can exist within a United Ireland. Um, as well as within the United Kingdom. Uh, um, I mean, that process of redefinition would be painful, um, but um, it's always seemed to me that the Irish government is more interested in the history of Ulster Unionism than the British government. I've been much more interested in um, the Covenant, for example, um, in exploring through the, the decade of centenaries events like the Covenant more interested really in the Battle of the Boyne, in orange history, um, you know, as a result of the simple fact that it shares the island with us units and, and the, you know, the population proportions are um, much more important for Dublin. The question really is whether, um, uh, whether unions are capable of addressing um, a reorientation like that, um, and um, I, I mean, there's nothing in unionist politics, or not very much in unionist politics, that shows uh, real creativity um, in um, redefining unionism in any context. I think the energies always seem to come more from you know at the civil society level or outside the, the political elite. Thanks very much. Um, you've written powerfully on religion, Ian, and this question relates to that. The question is, can you compare the role of the churches in 1921, 1998, and now in 2021? Um, well, um, not really. I mean, not with any great expertise. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, with some exceptions like Mary Harris, for example, who wrote about the Catholic Church and partition. Um, historians haven't really done a lot of, of that. Um, I mean, what I suppose what strikes me is, um, well, I mean, one of the obvious things to say is that um, religion was very central to the discussion in the early 20th century and the clergy um, key players in um, political debates in spite of, you know, the anti-clericalism of Sinn Féin and, and Republicans in a way that's just, I think, um, is just really hard to imagine now. So, um, I mean, there, there are many huge differences between um, the situation in 1921 and the situation today. Um, but one of them really is um, the um, 
revolution that's taken place in um, the position of the churches since you know the 1970s, uh, let's say, so that um, in the the centenary of the 1916 rising, Catholicism is almost um, absent, really. Uh, I mean, the the Irish Revolution, as it's now conceived, um, doesn't seem to involve Catholicism. And therefore, the society that emerged in the 1920s is is a mystery. Um, And it's really hard to um, explain how how such a conservative, uh, authoritarian Catholic regime emerged. Um, So... um, I, I think the attitude of the churches in 2021 is, um, insofar as I'm aware of it, is positive. Um, I know the um, the efforts of the Presbyterian Church to explore um, various um, opportunities for reconciliation and for dealing with the past of all kinds. Um, are are very genuine, for example. Thanks, Ian. A couple of questions which are on a similar theme, really, because they ask the historian to think about the counterfactual. So the first one is, if not partition, what was the solution to the Ulster question in 1921? And then another question, uh, much as partition was deeply flawed in nature, says the questioner, does the 1918 map you highlight suggest there was a degree of necessity there? Uh, yeah, okay. So they are very similar questions. I, I, um, I love counterfactual questions, actually. Um, and, um, uh, I mean, historians aren't supposed to indulge themselves in this kind of thing. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I would love a computer program that enabled you to feed in all the different, um, variables and, and it would then tell you what might have happened. Um, I guess that the, what you could say is, the the forces working for partition, or at least working in favour of a divided Ireland, were very strong. Um, there was a particular um, accident of timing, perhaps, um, with partition, that Ulster Unionists were really at the peak of their, uh, more or less at the peak of their political and economic power um, at the time when partition or the home rule problem was being discussed and debated. Uh, I mean, economically, things changed very, very quickly after 1921. Um, <clears throat> the, the background to partition, uh, in a way, was was simply the democratization of Irish politics, in which you might expect um, ethnic attachments, for lack of a better word, or sectarian attachments, um, to exert themselves um, more in Irish politics, um, and so um, the you know the longer term factors are, are pretty impressive. Uh, at the um, if you want to look at short term factors, um, Alvin Jackson's uh, amazing research on on um, this period in his Home Rule uh, book um, teases out all the. The moments when Redmond and Carson seem to be heading towards some kind of compromise, 
But the compromise actually was based on partition of some kind. It was always a variety of partition um, that was being discussed. I'm thinking now, you know, 1914, 1916, um, when there were attempts to come to some kind of arrangement. So it's hard to see uh, an alternative. The alternatives had all been rejected. What I do, what really fascinates me is that there were so many different models of partition on offer. Um, there was very early on two counties um, suggested to Redmond, um, not at all interested. Um, but, you know, that would have been very different, wouldn't it? Um, there was Carson's opening um, bid, which was for nine-county Ulster, which uh, was also... Um, on the table in 1920 when the Government of Ireland Act was was being formulated by Walter Long. Um, and incidentally, the British favoured Nine County Ulster because it would it would facilitate reunification. Um, Redmond by that stage had gone for the county option, counties opting out one by one or perhaps a four-county um, option. At one point, Asquith um, proposed that Ulster, statutory Ulster, should consist of counties Antrim and Derry, Armagh minus the south, Down minus the south, South Tyrone and North Fermanagh with a government assistance scheme to help people move from one side to the other if they weren't happy, which I think, thankfully, um, wasn't implemented or taken very seriously. Uh, so uh, the real mystery, in a way, for me, is uh, given that unionists, according to the, the principles generally accepted at the time, deserved four counties and not six, um, why British and um, Irish nationalist politicians didn't push them on this? I mean, force the issue down to a question where... Um, they would find things quite difficult. Thank you, Ian. We've worked you very hard. You can tell from the range and extent of the questions how stimulating people have found it. Uh, it's time to bring the session to an end. Thanks to the public engagement team here at Queen's for organising another very wonderful event. Thanks to the audience for the great questions and the great interest in the engagement. But for a brilliant talk and for a wonderful engagement with and fielding of questions, uh, we'll look forward to welcoming you back in person in in more favourable times. But for now, for a wonderful lecture, for great engagement with questions, uh, everyone will want me to offer profound thanks to our speaker today, Professor Ian McBride. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more on this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast's Shaping a Better World podcast on Apple, Spotify. Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.